I'm Kate Daniels. The purpose for designating special days and months as a focus on an issue are a means of having us be aware. And it's a means for that awareness to be more than just this moment in time. And so it is with Earth Day, coming up on Wednesday. I can visualize our planet feeling as though it can take a deep breath and exhale at this time. Whether it can continue to do so does depend on us, each of us, and how we treat our planet home. Jack Kerfoot is a scientist and energy expert and the author of Fueling America, An Insider's Journey. He has great and important insights on our energy use, the cost, the toll it takes on our planet, and he joins us to share some of this important information. Jack Kerfoot, good morning. It is such a pleasure to have you join us once again. Good morning, Kate. It's always a pleasure to be on your program. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, definitely uh, an interesting time to be talking about energy because of our unique circumstances right now. We're here uh, in our stay-in-place situation for about a month now, maybe a little longer. And what do you think, Jack, about this situation? Does it have an impact on how we may think about our future and the use of our resources? Well, I think I think the answer to that is yes. We've got to recognize, obviously, the world is changing and how we're interacting from everything as well. You know, we're still learning so much about this particular virus, so we can't say there's a direct correlation between COVID-19 and the climate or climate change from that standpoint. People have speculated there may be a correlation. Certainly our environment's changing. Uh, we can notice the ice caps have melted away. And more importantly, or more concerning, I should say, is the fact that the temperatures in the oceans are also increasing as well. So as the climates and temperatures in the air and the oceans change, then we've got to recognize that that will have an impact on our environment. And as such, we will start to see different types of viruses or different types of changes in other aspects of our ecosystem. Just like in a terrarium, as things are put into the terrarium, it starts to impact the climate. And I've looked at this as it was beginning, uh, maybe it was into it about a week, and I was thinking, this feels as though maybe we've been given a pause button knowing that we've been kind of going at an accelerated speed to this precipice, that somehow rather, and not to ever say that the coronavirus has is a good thing, because it's not. People have tragically lost their lives. Other people are impacted. Many, we're all impacted by that. On the other hand, are we being given a chance to, to really have to stop and take a look at ourselves? Well, the only there are several concerns that I have now. The good news is we've seen the amount of energy that we're using drop precipitously from from that standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, the major projects that were underway that were being constructed, the major renewable energy projects, have also hit on the pause button as well. So what we're actually seeing right now is um, major offshore wind projects, particularly in the northeast U.S., and even the onshore wind and uh, solar projects in the, uh, in the other parts of the U.S., particularly the Great Plains states, have also been put on hold because of the uh, uh, coronavirus that's occurred. Now, the other thing that we have to recognize is that the price of oil has dropped precipitously. 
Uh, and the reason that's driving that is not so much the coronavirus. What we're having is an economic play between major oil exporters to try and get back a dominant share of the sales to different uh, oil-importing countries. We have to recognize that the, all oil is not the same. The, the oils that are mined from the shale, uh, sorry, the tar sands in Canada are very expensive to mine. They typically cost over $40 a barrel to mine, a bar- equivalent of a barrel of oil. It's literally mined with, with uh, large, like an open pit mine. Uh, and then we look at the shale oil, and that typically costs about 15 to 20 a barrel to generate because it's far more expensive than conventional oil. And then we compare that to the oil that's in Russia and the oil in Saudi Arabia, which is much lower, maybe a 4 or $5 per barrel to produce and, and generate. And so what we're having is Russia and Saudi are trying to play who can get long-term contracts signed with major importers like China and India and other countries around the world. And so they've gone into trying to force out other players around the world. Now, unfortunately, what that means is because oil is cheap that our consumption of fossil fuels will increase. We see that every time, that when oil and gasoline prices drop, then the the amount of people uh, consumption of gasoline and diesel increases dramatically. So we're hitting the pause button, and it's slowing down renewable. And now with the drop in the the fossil fuels, particularly oil uh, and natural gas, we will probably see a surge once we start to, our economies around the world starts to rebuild, a surge in the actual consumption and uh, greenhouse gas emission. Well, that is certainly very sobering. Indeed. It, you know, just um, I was hoping in my thought pattern that we really were having an opportunity to reevaluate and and go down a very constructive positive course but um this certainly does put a different spin on it and and thinking of the renewable energy projects having to stop i would think they would be considered Oh, well, although maybe working on them, one cannot keep that distancing to stay healthy. So they've been completely shut down. Well, in many areas, some have been able to continue on depending on what stages they were in. And, of course, like in all operations, they try and maintain uh, their uh, the, the proper safety procedure, wearing masks accordingly, and also making sure they're trying to follow the rules and the regulations. But where it really impacts is the projects that have just begun, where they're just breaking ground on the new projects, where it is more labor-intensive and is almost impossible to really maintain safe distances and safe procedures. So a lot of projects have slowed down as well. So unfortunately, yes, that's the case. And of course, uh, existing oil and gas production facilities are still operating away. Um, and so the flow of natural gas and oil and even coal, uh, surprisingly, is still coming out at, um, uh, at, <laughs> at large volumes. So that's really so amazing that that would be the case. Thinking, though, as we go forward and if these since these major uh, renewable energy projects are on hold, but they are part of the economy, they are work for our workforce, wouldn't they want to expedite that as soon as it is safe to do so to get back on track? 
Well, yes, absolutely. And and all of these projects are only starting simply because they've already got contracts in place with either the utility or the private sector. So, yes, they'll want to get that back in place and operating um, as as fast as possible. We have to understand that in many times, particularly in the wind and even the solar projects, these are not being tied to utilities. They're being tied to um, major businesses, whether it's Microsoft or it may be General Motors, it may be Ford, uh, it could be uh, Walmart, uh, AT&T. All of these companies, major corporations, have basically gone out and started contracting with companies to build wind farms and solar parks to pl- uh, provide clean, green energy. Now, it provides clean, green energy, but we also have to recognize that when they do these contracts, they will sign 15- and 20-year contracts, and they're paying significantly less than what uh, the utilities have because, quite candidly, onshore wind and solar and even hydro is cheaper than uh, oil and gas or and certainly coal, even with the lower prices that we see today. So from that standpoint, we're seeing increased demand for uh, renewable energy. And we've seen a dramatic increase uh, in the move to renewable energy over the last 15 years. In 2005, over 51% of our power in the, across the entire country was from coal. Um, in April, of la- and only maybe 5 or 6% was from renewable energy in 2005, primarily hydro. But uh, in April of last year, coal had dropped down to 22%, and renewable energy had increased to 23%. The major factors were the fact that improved technology are driving down the cost of renewables, and quite candidly, the utility boards for each state, the first things they look at is the reliability, and then second of all is price for the consumer. And for that reason, that's why they have been shifting away from coal uh, and moving to renewable. It's cost, and it's also uh, quality and uh, as well, and reliability. So that kind of thinking, it's isn't it exciting to think that there is that shift that, that's been going on? <clears throat> It is, and we're going to see that shift continue on for quite some time. Um, The renewables in in the Great Plains State have been actively expanding and growing over the last 15 years. In Oklahoma, in 2005, there was virtually no renewable energy at all. And today, it's running about 50% uh, of their total power. Even though it is a major producer of natural gas and oil, uh, the utilities have been moving to renewables simply because of cost. Um, And so we're going to see that change continue. And I might point out that states like Oklahoma, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa have some of the lowest cost of power uh, in the United States. So they've made the move from fossil fuels to renewables and have kept the prices down for the consumer. Uh, so from that standpoint, economically, it's positive, and obviously from a climate standpoint, that's positive. But the other major changes that we're seeing is in the Northeast. There's a major building program offshore from Maine down to, let's say, North Carolina, building offshore wind farms. Now, offshore wind has been a major source of power in Europe, Western Europe, for the last 20 years. And the reason uh, Europe went to offshore wind is they don't have as much space because of the population density uh, as we have in the U.S. Uh, and the winds offshore around the world are typically stronger and more consistent than onshore. So they have been building these major wind farms that are major power outputs like 2,000, 3,000 megawatt capacity. And what we're seeing along the East Coast, particularly highlighted by uh, states like New York and Massachusetts, um, 
but also Maryland and Virginia, are major uh, offshore wind projects that are designed by these states to replace uh, the power plants that are both coal and also nuclear that are coming to the end of their life. So they're looking for the next phase of replacement, and they're moving from uh, coal and also even nuclear to lower cost and more reliable offshore wind. And is offshore wind like the uh, the wind that we see on land, those huge kinds of turbines, uh, like big windmills? Well, actually, um, what you'll actually find is they're actually larger, <laughs> uh, and uh, they have much greater output. And offshore wind turbines now uh, can generate, let's say 15 years ago, a wind turbine might have a power capacity of one, maybe two megawatts of power. Uh, the offshore wind turbines today um, can generate 10 to 12 megawatts of power. Um, and we have to recognize this a small change of wind velocity is a significant difference in power output. A 14-mile-an-hour wind versus a 16-mile-an-hour wind, a 2-mile-an-hour difference means the power output in the wind turbine can more than double. So this is, this is a major source of energy. And it's important to recognize that the Department of Energy re, uh, released a report that estimated that with current technology that the U.S. could be 80% renewable um, as, as we stand today. Now, they projected out to 2050, and they used 2050 simply because the DOE, Department of Energy, simply looks at, at the timing of power plants, whether it's coal, oil, natural gas, uh, geothermal, whatever the source is, and they look at times when these plants are reaching end of their life, which is typically a 40-year timeline. And then when that occurs, then they look at what the next power plant would be, and what the DOE has done is said, well, we will assume that the utilities and the power uh, companies that are looking to buy the, or looking to replace these facilities will look for cleaner, cheaper energy, and so that's what they've come up with, the 80% number. There are certain pertinent, certain sectors in the U.S. that are not as rich in renewable energy. You know, in the Pacific Northwest, we have offshore wind, we have obviously hydro, and even geothermal. But if we look in areas like the southeast, from Louisiana to, let's say, Florida, what they really have is radiant heat or solar potential, but very limited wind or very limited geothermal. So from that, that's why it's 80%. But with new technology, I think within the next 10 to 15 years, we will have the capacity to generate 100% of our power from renewable energy. Because, of course, in the South, solar it seems to be a, a viable method, and they ought to be taking really great advantage of that. They are. There's a major boom down, particularly in Florida. Now, the other thing that's interesting, and this is a change in, in the energy industry as well, more and more of the utilities across the U.S. are providing uh, customers the opportunity, if they have solar panels on their homes, to actually sell that excess power that they may have in storage back into the grid. So the utilities are effectively using consumers as many power sources as well. And you're seeing new home complexes, like I've seen the Dell Webb uh, facilities, I've read about them in Arizona, where they're all linked together. Each of the houses have solar panels, but the power grid is actually tied together for that whole complex. And then they can generate power and provide power to their neighbors as well. And if there's an excess capacity from that housing unit, then they can sell it back to the utility, and then the rebate goes to the community. 
So again, it's innovation and changes in our power grid system that's not really being discussed uh, in what we read about or listen to the news or, or hear the news or read the news. And that seems like such a great cooperative effort rather than, uh, you know, really trying to pit people against each other or pit businesses against uh, the consumer. Here, having that cooperation seems like a very strong way to move forward. Absolutely. But uh, again, part of that is it depends on uh, the the utilities. Uh, They're obviously very progressive and innovative utilities that have been pushing new and different ideas. Um, And in certain areas like the Great Plains, competition between the utilities is very fierce. When I lived in Houston, I could literally go online and buy my electricity from 22 different uh, companies that were selling power, and I could lock in on a price for three months, six months, or 12 months. Uh, so competition drives innovation, uh, and we, in certain areas that are making the most progress, we see a very competitive market between the utilities. Those that don't have that competition tend to move along a little more slowly and aren't quite as progressive. Now, this is a, a different angle on cost and the value of having renewable resources. Some people would say that it's more expensive, but I think what I'm hearing from you is that it is very cost-effective. Absolutely. Studies by the Department of Energy and also outside private sources like the Lazard Bank have looked at studies. And if you look at, if you take away all subsidies whatsoever, uh, the cheapest form of power in the United States is onshore wind. It's about 5.2 cents per kilowatt hour. The average cost of electricity across the United States is about 13.3 cents. I think in Washington, where you are, it's running about 11 cents. Um, now, when we then, the next most expensive is then solar and then hydro, and then we get into natural gas. But when we talk about coal, we're talking about the cost of coal to now almost triple the cost of onshore wind, actually probably more than triple now the cost of onshore wind. And the reason for that is, quite candidly, what people don't quite recognize is that the highest quality, there are poor grades of coal and anthracite's the highest quality. And so that, a, a ton of that coal generates the maximum amount of power, a Brit, you know, British thermal unit measurement. But that has been virtually mined out across the world. So the utilities now that still have the coal plants are using lower quality coal. Now that coal is very cheap, about $2.50 a ton, but it costs over $12 a ton to ship it by rail, one, because the cost for transportation by railroad have gone up, but also it takes more coal to generate the same amount of power. So quite candidly, making the move to renewable energy means we'll actually save the consumer's money. More importantly, what it also means strategically is this will mean that the United States will be energy sufficient and will never be again dependent on foreign oil imports uh, to keep the lights running in our homes and our uh, schools uh, and will be completely energy independent from that standpoint. So there are many, many advantages to making the move to renewable energy in addition, of course, to contributing to reduction of of, uh, the global uh, temperature rise and mitigating the risk of climate change and also simply clean air. Exactly. And and that is one thing. Mentioning clean air just triggers for me how people, even in Los Los Angeles, in Manila, in the Philippines, have said they see blue skies and have clean air, something they haven't experienced in who knows how long. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the 30 largest cities in China, I lived 11 years in Southeast Asia and traveled in, extensively in, uh, to China and to India. And in the typically the winter and fall months, cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Mumbai, uh, you can the inversion is so bad you can extend your hand out and you can't even see the end of your fingers if you're wearing a white glove. The smog is so dense. So the one good thing of the coronavirus is we are getting cleaner skies that we've never seen before. But unfortunately, I fear that once our economies start to resume. Uh, slowly grind back to our normal operation that once again we'll be be faced with a very dramatic uh, increase in smog in the major cities that have not made the move to renewable energy. So there is my hope. Maybe it's a Pollyanna hope, thinking that we've had this experience for a month, who knows how much longer, that we are doing things differently. Maybe we won't stay this way. Of course, I don't think it's feasible that we could. But if we see how not driving five, seven days a week, uh, cutting that back, that in itself is still going to be saving us somewhat on the energy and on the pollution. Well, I think that's a very good point, Uh, simply because um, I remember when I came back, I was in Europe at the time, and I came back to the United States, and I, this was just, when I left the U.S., they had not implemented the requirement for unleaded fuel, and when I came back, they had, and I was amazed that I could literally smell the difference in air quality in major cities like uh, Denver and Houston and Los Angeles. Uh, To me, there was a, a noticeable difference. And perhaps the fact that uh, the the clean air and the cleaner air and they can see the skies will perhaps uh, encourage more people to support the move to renewable energy. And and I think it somehow does, uh, of course, include the employer seeing that it is very feasible for many people to telecommute. So to work that into the whole scheme of how businesses operate. I think that's also a very good point, too. There's nothing like uh, <laughs> having the world turn on its head for people to look at doing business differently. Uh, and if they can see the uh, productivity from people working at home being the same as it was uh, as opposed to coming into the offices, they're simply going to look at the bottom line and say, well, obviously that means the the, the same amount of work output uh, is out there, whether they are in an office or not, and we won't need as many uh, as much office space, and we can reduce our overhead costs from uh, larger brick-and-mortar buildings from that standpoint, and telecommuting can become a more effective way to do business, and I think that would be a very positive way. Um, we're talking about centuries of social contact, uh, so we are, it is a major change, but maybe that's another positive factor from uh, the pandemic we're experiencing. Right. So we'll find maybe a better balance where we still have that social contact. We have social contact, but it's virtual, so it's not yes. quite the same as, as being in one place. Uh, but being able to... Uh, Put uh, uh, temper that a bit and seeing the value of not going at a frantic pace because we have to rush here and rush there. If some of the time we can be working in place, it's less wear and tear in our whole system. Well, that's absolutely true. And the other factor we have to realize, because the utilities have been moving to renewable energy, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, which used to be the primary source in the United States, has dropped. 
And actually now the greatest source of greenhouse gas emission is from transportation, from cars, uh, trains, trucks, uh, of course airlines too. So if we can cut back in the amount of transportation or driving back and forth for their personal vehicles and also even in the amount of buses, then we're going to see another positive impact in the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Now personally I think we're going to see some major changes in uh, electric vehicles over the next few years that will make it even more compelling for people to make the move to uh, to electric vehicles. So. I think we're going to see more changes in the way we do business, not only from a type of energy that we use, but our whole, we'll call it electrification of our transportation systems, as well as how we do our basic work as well. So we are going to be going through some major changes in our daily lives as a result of the COVID-19 epidemic. And we can look at that as finding the positive changes that we can keep promoting forward with that. Absolutely. Right. So do you have some sort of insider knowledge or in awareness that the general public wouldn't know about electric vehicles? Well, the, uh, there's actually quite a bit of changing that's going on. Uh, people tend to look at the Tesla uh, from that standpoint, and they say, well, it's, about, it's a very expensive vehicle, and it, it, driving range is about 350 miles EPA, uh, standard driving range. But what's changing is all the major, we have to realize there's literally billions, probably trillions of dollars being invested every year around the world on electric vehicle technology. And it's not just the automobile companies. It's also the oil and gas companies, which are becoming energy companies. And it's also the tech companies like Google and Microsoft as well. All are investing in different aspects of the electrification transportation systems. I've read about two new battery types. Um, one is lithium-ion. The other is not a, a lithium-ion. I believe it's a nickel-based battery. And this one will allow you to drive 500 miles on a single charge. More importantly, the recharging time for this uh, battery is less than five minutes. Wow. Okay, and when we could get down to that, then it basically says that we could convert those gasoline stations into charging stations and perhaps gasoline as well, but effectively an energy station or a fueling station as well. Now, as far as the oil and gas companies, they've been investing heavily in a wide range of things such as battery technology and recharging uh, technology to shorten the cycle time and speed up the charging abilities, and also carbon capture systems that will reduce <clears throat> the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted from their operations. Shell has come out and said their plan by 2050 is to be carbon neutral from a worldwide operation. And they're looking at that from a carbon capture system standpoint for their even their oil and gas operations, uh, which is all, to me, very positive moves as well. Now, some people will argue, yes, well, the oil companies will push back, and it's not to their advantage to have fueling stations with charging stations. But actually, that's not the case. We have to realize that where the, the oil and gas companies to make their mo money on the gas stations is not from the gasoline. It's from you going in and buying a soft drink or munchies or other things that are or lottery tickets in these gas stations. That's where 85 to 90 percent of their revenue on each of these gas stations comes from, uh, whether it's a Shell station or an independent station or even these little 7-Eleven uh, stations that sell gas. Their big revenue 
is from selling the food and drinks inside the store itself. So from their standpoint, if you come in and plug in your vehicle or you come in and fill it up with gas, the revenue they're going to generate is going to be from the munchies that you go inside and buy along with the payment for the power. So they're actually very uh, very supportive of this. And you're seeing these changes going on right now in Europe where they're changing from oil and ga- or gas stations to fueling stations with charging uh, units available in each of these facilities. That is fascinating. I had no idea they already had those in operation. So that's great news. It is. And the other thing is the private sector is continuing to push ahead. Uh, Amazon last year committed to buy 100,000 electric vans for their delivery units. Their goal is to be a zero-carbon emission uh, operating system uh, corporation uh, by 2030. So they're far more aggressive in making the move to being clean, green energy and having a carbon-neutral operation uh, than countries around the world. So actually the private sector is leading the charge moving to a clean, green energy. And that only, I think, supports the idea that all of us as individuals have that kind of power. You know, we need to be committed to change and move forward, and it becomes a groundswell. Absolutely. Well, Jack Kerfoot, you are just always such a wealth of great information and inspiration. And I so appreciate you and the work you're doing. Your book, Fueling America, an Insider's Journey, is certainly very much worth the read with lots more information than we could ever cover in a short time we have together. And your website, share that with us if you would. Yes, that's www.jack.com. Kerfoot, K-E-R-F-O-O-T, dot com. And uh, the name of the website is Our Energy Conundrum, uh, because we're always faced with an energy conundrum, and we need to understand what it is and how we can move forward. Well, that, again, tweaks the interest so that we really delve more into what that conundrum is. We've touched on it, but there's lots more to learn. So, Jack, it's just been wonderful to spend time with you this morning. Thank you for the work you do and for taking time with us. Thank you, Kate. It's always a pleasure to be on your program.